This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do is What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, me and my bienvenue. Let's embark on yet another episode of Equity Mates, where we commandeer the world of investing with the precision of a military campaign. I am here, as always, with my equity buddy, Ren. Who am I? Uh, you're Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for people who are new to the show, welcome. <laughs> Bryce gets his introduction, his standard introduction translated by Chat GPT into the voice of a celebrity or a famous historical figure. And we as the audience have to guess. Uh, and that was Napoleon. Yeah. Side note on Napoleon. Napoleon before, Dynamite. Be- <laughs> before we get into the investing content, have you seen the trailer for the Napoleon movie? I haven't seen it, but I want to see it. It looks epic. Nice. But apparently the movie's like three or four hours long. Great. Four's pushing it's it. pushing <laughs> it. That's very long. I'm I was, not a movie guy with the best of times. Still haven't seen Oppenheimer. That's um, good. I need to see that. I was going to go see Killers of the Flower Moon, but it was three and a half hours. Far and out. Is so, this a trend? Uh, like, is this a thing that movie makers are now like three hours is hitting different? Maybe. I, I don't know. But like for me, it's like bring back an intermission. What was that one called? Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. Jeez, you are out of touch, aren't no, I've you? No, I've seen it on the... Um, I'm actually just adding it to my list. Anyway, we're not here to talk movies. We'll save that for the uh, Bryson Wren's Movie Time podcast uh, coming 2024. <laughs> we're here to talk investing and we have got a cracking investor about to join us in the studio, Tom Norton. Uh, he's based in the UK, but he is an expert in Asian markets. He spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. He's the managing partner and chief investment officer at Prusik Prusik Investment. We'll we'll ask him how to pronounce it properly. He is coming to Australia to speak at the Sewn Hearts and Minds conference on the 17th of November. Just side note, 17th of November is my birthday. Mark it in your calendars. (laughs) The Sewn Hearts and Mind conference sees a number of investment experts pitching their best stock idea for the next 12 months. Those ideas then get rolled up into the Hearts and Minds listed investment company available on the ASX. Uh, Ticket is HM1. And then rather than taking a management fee, that money is donated to medical research. So it's a great way for some of Australia and the world's best investors to donate that, use their knowledge and to donate 
to cutting edge medical research. Yeah, some phenomenal uh, experts pitching at the Hearts and Minds conference. We're lucky enough to have three of them on the show. If you want to, uh, if you want to go, head to the Stone Hearts and Minds Investment Conference website. The tickets are three and a half grand for in person. However, they do have tickets for the virtual conference. Uh, and they have it. We have a discount code exclusive for the Equity Mates community. So tickets are four hundred dollars. If you want to get the twenty percent discount, use the code Equity Mates two thousand and twenty three, all one word. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Well, Bryce. With that said, uh, we've got a lot to cover with Tom. We're going to talk about Asian markets as we close out the year. Obviously, the big two, China and India. But I'm excited to also ask about some markets that get less attention. Indonesia is obviously one that we speak a lot about on the show. Yep. It's a country right on our doorstep here in Australia that deserves more attention. And it's not just because I did a minor in Indonesian <laughs> at university and I'm looking for some use of it. Uh, but then we've also asked Tom to bring two stocks uh, that he's watching or that he's buying at the moment. And so I'm sure we'll hear some interesting names that we haven't heard much about. Before we jump into it, a quick reminder that while we are licensed, we're not aware of your personal circumstances. Any information is for entertainment and education purposes only, and any advice is general. So let's go. Tom, welcome to Equity Mates. Thank you. It's good to be here. So to kick things off, I've got a would you rather question. Now, this one is quite cliche and gets brought up quite often when we play with our mates. So would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? I think it's got to be a hundred duck-sized horses, really. Yes. I think they're going to be I think they're going to be easy to kick around. Throw but, your legs uh, around. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one horse-sized duck would be quite intimidating. Super intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly that. It's uh yeah, that doesn't sound uh that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. No. Anyway, good to th- kick things off and we're excited about uh, our discussion today. You're preparing to pitch a stock at the Hearts and Minds conference, and uh, we're really keen to uh, to see that pitch. But firstly, why is participating in the Sown Hearts and Minds conference important to you? Well, it's obviously a great conference, and I've followed it for many years and uh, known a couple of the presenters and, you know, always keen to hear what people are going to talk about. And obviously, also the fact that it's for charity and, um, you know, reading about what they do, particularly in medical research. There's also that's great as well because you know it's part of something which is not only incredibly prestigious and I'm you know very honoured to be asked to join, but also has that cause which makes it different to a lot of the conferences that we normally speak at. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a uh, pretty amazing uh, what they're doing, and they've certainly had some big names over the years, and again big names this year. Alongside yourself, Tom, uh, Dan Loeb is coming to to give the keynote address. That's very exciting for people who are thinking about buying tickets and coming along. Now, Tom, obviously the Hearts and Minds Conference, you're pitching for just 12 months, which is a shorter time horizon than you know, you, you're probably thinking when you're investing for your fund. So let, let's start generally with your fund. How would you define your investment philosophy? The fund I run is an equity income fund in Asia X Japan. So what I'm trying to do is put together a portfolio of stocks that have a sustainable yield that will grow in real terms over the next 5, 10, 20 years and try and buy those stocks at a price, which means that if I'm wrong, we hopefully don't lose very much. And if we're right, you know, we make we make a lot. So the idea is it's a sort of compounding style strategy where you're getting this stable dividend yield, but because of the growth in that in real terms over time, you're also sort of compounding capital at the same time. So that's sort of 
in a nutshell what I what I do. And so then when you're having to pick a stock for a 12 month time horizon, you said there you're looking for sort of 20, 30 year compounders. <laughs> How different is that approach to your normal process? Well, yeah, it's funny. It's, I've worked on, I mean, I've been doing Asia for almost 30 years and I've been, I've worked on sort of opposite extreme or extremes of the market. So I've run pension fund money and I've also run a hedge fund where, you know, your time horizon could be days or weeks. And so I think, you know, you can certainly, you know, think of things that if you are thinking about the next 12 months, different things are going to be important. And I suppose some things don't change, like you want stocks that have got good stocks, they're undervalued, they're growing and so on and so forth. But you probably also want to think a little bit more about catalysts over that time frame. And also you probably want something that's a little bit more extreme on the risk reward. In other words, you're not looking at things that are 10 or 15%. You want things that do have the potential over that time, you know, to be up 100% plus or that, you know, they have, you know, very attractive risk returns. But you're right. It is, you can't time it. You can't make the market suddenly price your stock at the level you, you want it to. But there's certain things you can do which are just going to, make it more likely over a shorter time period yeah there's uh i i do feel bad you know there's there's an element of 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 luck when it comes to what year you present like i feel bad for the 2021 stock pitchers who pitched in november 2021 and then the market just fell for the next year and you know there's nothing you can do about that as a individual stock picker except hope your company is resilient so you mentioned there you might start thinking about catalysts and things that will happen in the next 12 months that will uh, give you you know give your stock a re-rating or, or, or um, change its fortunes in the eyes of the market what are some of the other factors that you're starting to think about um, when you're choosing the stock for this pitch I think it's it's it, it probably isn't massively different to what you're thinking about longer term but it just ex- accentuates it so things like earnings momentum price momentum potential for corporate activity, um, you know, restructurings or spin-offs or, or thing, things of that nature, you know, and I suppose things that are, as I say, that valuation gap is you do want stocks where your upside potential, if you're right, is is going to be significant as well. Because um, so I think it, it doesn't, it, it's not completely different. It's just that you're going to overweight some of those other measures a little bit more. Things like, as I say, earnings momentum and the corporate activity probably become a little bit more important than if you've got a 10-year view, you know, you don't need to worry about things like that. So, Tom, we want to turn to the Asian markets because at uh, Prusik, you have a particular focus on Asian equities. So, let's start general. Why Asia? Why is that an appealing focus? Well, in my case, it's, it's very simple is that's all I've done. So, I don't have any other transferable skills. I started in Asia in the mid-90s and I've done it, I've, I've done it ever since. And I think particularly in the UK, Asia X Japan, as we call it, always was quite a big area of investment for lots of different historical reasons. So it was something that, you know, when I started, there was very much still the view that Asia was going to grow faster than um, developed markets. And therefore, it was a very good place to um, to invest. And so there was always a lot of emphasis on what was, you know, a relatively small part of the market. So in my case, it's, it's, it's that, but I can't do anything else. I suppose if I was saying to people, why should they invest in Asia? then I think there's a couple of interesting things. One is, it's a, it's a cliche, but it is very diverse. You've got everything, you know, India, Vietnam, you know, uh, we, include, we include Australia in it as well, um, you know, Hong Kong, China. You've got, you know, you've got, you know, half the world's population and there's always something going on. There's something to do. It also means, obviously, there's always something going wrong as well, but it's a very diverse market. And and just final, it's, it's, it's a little bit less exciting to talk about this, but because Asia 
is dominated by retail investors and foreign investors. You don't really have many of the domestic institutional investors or super fund investors like you would do in, in Australia. And so the, the inefficiency in market is, is higher, particularly for the sort of things that we look at, because the sort of stock that we're looking at, this type of compounder, uh, very you know somewhat uh, mature company, these are just ignored by the market because everyone is there is going for growth and excitement. And you know so you tend to find stocks that in other markets we trade at very high valuations because they are less risky. In Asia, it's the opposite. Because they're not as exciting, they trade at much lower valuations. So I suppose that's that's maybe a couple of observations on Asia. Yeah, yeah. We, look, we, we've spoken uh, to a few Asian-focused fund managers and every time we leave and we're just... You know, we, we just think that here in Australia, there's so much opportunity on our doorsteps and there's so much happening. It's changing so quickly. So it is a really exciting topic and, and I guess part of the world. A lot of those conversations when we have them end up defaulting to India and China. And don't worry, we, we will get to India and China, but we didn't want to start there. So outside of the big two uh, Asian countries... What are some of the other Asian markets that you find yourself spending a lot of time on these days? Well, for me, I mean, you, you mentioned India there. And I think one of the reasons that emerging market investing and Asian investing originally was interesting to people was this whole demographic story that you'd have young countries that were getting wealthier, they're investing in infrastructure and education, and that was going to lead to massive productivity increases. And you would make money by effectively in a very sort of simplistic way this growing middle class would start spending. And you know, this would be hugely positive for stock markets because it really is the middle class that's important when it comes to stock markets. If you're very poor, obviously it's just subsistence living, that's not very that doesn't contribute to the economy. And if you're very rich, you're buying imported goods or whatever else, it's that's not important. It's this middle class that's so important. And really now when you think about Asia, most of it is fairly mature. Even places like China are fairly mature from that sort of sense. And the only markets that are I think genuinely growth markets in that sense, certainly out of the, if we, we, we stay out of the frontier markets where we're really in the, what we call emerging markets are India, then Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam. So the two that I think are much more interesting are Indonesia and the Philippines, because like India, they've got this great demographic story, you know, all the stats you can imagine, like, you know, household debt to GDP is 10% and it can grow to 20, 30% over the next 10 years. You know, that means that a lot of stocks are going to be interesting for investment because they are going to be growing quite rapidly just because of the just because of the economic growth. But unlike India, Indonesia, the Philippines get a lot less airtime. They're not as popular. They trade at very cheap valuations. So I think for me, Indonesia and the Philippines are the most interesting out of those two. And I can I can talk about why that is, but they're the ones I'd pick for you know the, the markets that I spend a lot of time on that I think are maybe not as popular with with other investors mm. well well let's turn to china because you know uh we've seen a lot of reasons to worry about china as investors the slow moving property crisis that's unfolding the youth unemployment above 20 percent slowing economic growth so what's your take on china is it as gloomy as we seem to think it is or are there some green shoots coming through and there's opportunity down the track what, what's your take yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, it's a big question, a lot going on in China. And I think you, you're right. I think simplistically, you'd say that things are not as bad as we see in the Western media. I think that's a very good way of putting it, because it's not as though there's not bad things going on in China. There, there clearly are. But in my view, they're sort of taken and magnified 10 times. 
and anything that good that's happened is not talked about at all. So the, the view we get of what's going on is very negative, but it's not to say that they don't have a lot of challenges. The points you've mentioned there, I think the ones I'm not worried about, things like youth unemployment, slowing economic growth rate, that's something you need to worry about when you're paying 20 or 30 times earnings for a stock. But China now trades on eight or nine times PE. It trades at a far bigger discount than Japan has ever traded at. So if China is going to be, you know, Japanified, as some people talk about, I don't think that's something you need to worry about when you're only paying these sort of levels of multiple, because the market is not pricing in any growth anyway. And so some of these issues, certainly we will have the real issues and we need to worry about them at some point and at some valuation level. But at the moment, I don't think they're that's important. The key risks are one, the as you say, the slow-moving property crisis, which I think is is something China's going to be dealing with for a while. But I think there's a reasonable chance we're sort of past the worst of that in terms of we already have ninety percent of China property default property companies in default. Ninety percent of private property companies have already defaulted, and so you know it's it, you, you can't get many more, obviously by definition. And so you're almost past the worst of that. And the geopolitics is obviously something that, you know, no one can really predict. You know, there's some signs that, that, that that's getting better as, as well. But I suppose my, my view in China is it's factoring in an extremely negative scenario. And even though there are very real risks, when we look at it, we certainly can see some opportunities there. And we think it's just too pessimistic to write off the whole of China. Hmm. Yeah, big country to write off. Yeah. A lot of people to write off. <laughs> Speaking of uh, big countries that I guess were written off for a long time, but certainly don't seem to be written off now, let's let's turn to India and get some of your high-level thoughts there. I think, so we've been doing this podcast for six years now, and I think ever since we started the podcast, there have been there's been a lot of excitement over the possibilities around India, the demographic story and, and the like. And, and for years, it felt like there was a lot of excitement, but there wasn't a lot of movement. And I know six years isn't that long in the scheme of economic development, but it seems like the last year or two, um, we've seen some, some really real movement and some really interesting companies sort of emerge. What's your take on India? Uh, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, give us your sort of high-level thoughts. The first thing to say is I'm more of a value investor. And so India is always going to be more of a struggle for me to invest in. But I think India is almost the opposite of China. Because in China, I think you ask foreign investors or people what they think, they would say, well, there's a 50% chance things are going to be absolutely terrible, maybe a 40% chance that they muddle through and a 10% chance things will do quite well. And India is the opposite. I think almost everybody is convinced that India will grow rapidly for the next 10 or 20 years. And there's no downside risk at all. And that means that for a lot of stocks in India, particularly the consumer stocks, you're paying 50, 60, 70 times earnings for these stocks. And it's not like these stocks are not growing or they're not great companies. You know, they are. But the trouble you, you've got, and this comes to, I suppose, my overall view when it comes to investing in emerging markets is you always need to be careful of downside risk and thinking about it, uh, particularly when no one else is. So India has got lots of very positive things. It's also got some negative things, you know, be that on the, well, the politics, be that the inflation, the budget deficit. There's there's lots of um, issues that could become bigger issues in, in the future. And again, it comes down to valuation. That's not a problem if you're paying, you know, low valuations. But when you start paying 
these 50, 60, 70 times multiples, then your downside risk, if things don't pan out as you think, are, are pretty significant. So like everyone else, I'm very optimistic on India. We're always looking for ideas there. It is a great market. There are great opportunities there. But I think the trouble is valuations are very expensive, even for India. So it's not like, you know, India, as we know, has always been expensive, but even relative to its own history, it's very, very expensive. And my concern is you're just not getting enough risk premium there. So for me, it's something that we have a lot less money in um, because of, you know, for that reason. And so then where does Indonesia sit between China and India in terms of valuation? You know, Indonesia has some pretty pretty big consumer brands there. And it, again, it's, a, it's a, a country that we've had a lot of experts talk about on the show before as well. So where does it sit between the two? Yeah, no, it's funny. I suppose it's interesting because I'm used to speaking to people mainly in UK and Europe. And obviously, Indonesia is geographically a lot further away. But for you guys, you know, Indonesia is some a market that is, you know, gets, gets much more airtime. And so, you know, you, you're much more familiar with it. I suppose Indonesia is much nearer the China end of valuation than it is uh, the Indian side. And it still has a perception of a market that has, you know, terrible macro, um, you know, is in- incredibly dangerous, incredibly risky. But but actually, when you look at the macro, it actually looks pretty good. And this year, you know, the currency has been one of the stronger non-US dollar currencies um, and, you know, the least volatile. So it's it's a market where I think you've got, yeah, it's priced almost more like a China in terms of people's worry about it, concerns about it, yet its growth profile is much more similar to a, an India. It's growing at maybe 5 or 6% a year GDP terms. You've got this huge emerging middle class. You've got pretty sensible government, a sensible central bank. And so, yeah, to, to me, Indonesia is, is, is almost the best of both worlds. It's not, again, there's, there's lots of risks in Indonesia too. But it's somewhere that, you know, I'd much rather have money in Indonesia than, than India for, for that reason. Well, Tom, I agree with you. I um, learned Indonesian at uni. I, I, it's right on our doorstep. There's so many reasons why we should be excited about Indonesia and Australians should be engaging more in, with Indonesia. You, you said there we hear a lot about it. The fact of the matter is we don't really, but we should. But it's still an incredibly hard market to access. There was a Goldman Sachs projection about the largest economies in 2075, and four of the top six are Asia. Um, let's see if I can remember this. Uh, China, number one, India, two, US, three, Indonesia, four. Nigeria five and then Pakistan six and to think that the fourth biggest economy could be on our doorstep in our lifetime like it's a real opportunity here in Australia we've touched on three of those four Asian countries China India and Indonesia Pakistan coming in at number six surprised me do you look at a lot in Pakistan as well yeah I mean we have invested in Pakistan in the past and I've I've been to Pakistan visiting companies I mean it's a market I would say you know, is, is is certainly very appealing if you're a value investor. You know, it's trading on a PE of three times. It's got a 10% plus dividend yield. It's obviously very risky. And the way I always describe emerging markets as opposed to developed markets is if you're investing in EM like Indonesia and Philippines, as opposed to Australia or the UK, it's a bit like off-piste skiing versus on-piste. So it's not as though you can't hurt yourself skiing on the piste, but generally things are pretty well organized and you're not going really to get into too much trouble. Emerging market investing is a bit more like off-piste. It's, you just need to be a lot more careful about what you're doing and where you're going. Pakistan is 
is more like sort of skiing off Vector Ross in Verdier, <laughs> you know, the Red Bull Freestyle Championship. So it's a uh, it's somewhere that, that you know you'd need to be very comfortable with losing all your money if you did invest there because it's it's obviously got a hugely tricky political situation. But as you say, the you know when I you know you see sort of Toyota dealerships there and you know they're selling something like five hundred thousand cars a year. This is the whole of Pakistan for a country of two hundred million people. You can obviously see if things work out as Goldman Sachs predict, and the economy in fifty years' time is one of the biggest in the world. Then owning really good franchises there, if they survive, and you keep your ownership and et cetera, et cetera, obviously there's the potential to make huge amounts of money. So I think if you're thinking about that really extreme places where the upside potential is enormous, then somewhere like Pakistan is you know, absolutely there. And if you're paying three times earnings, then you, you know, obviously you're getting a huge amount of risk premium in there. But as I say, the frontier markets are um, and I can say it's from experience, bitter experience there. You need to be very, very careful about when you invest in them. And uh, it's, uh, you, you know, there's a lot of things you need to think about there, which you don't really need to think about in even in emerging markets. But um, yeah, I, I, I think I think Pakistan is very interesting. I've, I've got a soft spot for that market. Nice. Well, we'll put it on the watch list. So, Tom, we're going to take a very quick break. And then on the other side, we're going to dive into two stocks that you either own in your funds or that you find are really interesting. So, we'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we're here with Tom Norton, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Prusik Investment. And uh, we've just covered off Asian markets as, as they are uh, currently in 2023. But now we want to turn to some individual stocks. So, Tom, we've asked you to bring two to the table today. So uh, if you can let us know what the first one is and just broadly what it does, and then we'll have a look at, at the investment case and, and go from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the first company I was going to talk about is a company called First Pacific, which is a Hong Kong company. I first came across them uh, almost 30 years ago in the, in the, in the mid-90s. Um, it's a conglomerate. It's um, owned by the Salim family, which is an Indonesian family. And you know their, their big businesses are in, in noodles, they're in, in steak and Indo food in, the, in Indonesia. And they also own a couple of companies in the Philippines in infrastructure and uh, and telecoms. And so, yeah, it's a conglomerate. It's very cheap. It's buying back stock, paying a big dividend. And I think it's got a huge amount of upside potential. 
Yeah. So I guess give us the the reason why you like it. You said there, there's some things you like. It's cheap. It's buying back stock. But I guess you know you, uh, you said you're looking for companies that you can own for five, ten, twenty years. Why is why does this company fit the bill? Yeah. What I like about it is, um, as I say, I followed the company for a while. It's a conglomerate. They you know buy and sell businesses. Sometimes they do a good job, and sometimes they they don't. If you, if you look at the company now, it's it's you know the market cap of the company is about 1.6 billion US. And as I say, it owns effectively stakes in three businesses, Indofood, the noodle company, 70% of the Indonesian noodle market, the biggest noodle company in the world, actually. PLDT, which is a telco in the Philippines, not particularly exciting, like a lot of telcos, but it's, you know, it's, um, it's fairly stable. And Metro Pacific, which is infrastructure, you know, toll roads, which are, you know, a fantastic business, power, uh, hospitals, uh, water. And the business itself, if you look at the, most of their underlying companies are listed, so you can see what you can get a lot of detail on what they are. But on a look through basis, because they own stakes of between 25 and 50% in these three companies, generate profits of about 800 million US dollars. So you're paying 1.6 billion US and you're getting profits of 800 million US, so about two times price earnings ratio. And so it's incredibly cheap. And um, one of the things, I mean, obviously, there's lots of cheap companies in Asia. As I say, one of the things that makes me more confident about this is the company is actually buying back stock and is paying a, a big dividend. So you are getting some of that money returned to you. The other reason it's cheap is it comes from one of the other negatives is the company does have a reasonable amount of debt. It has about 1.3 billion US dollars of debt. So versus that market cap, that's a reasonable level of debt. It's not something that worries me. It doesn't worry the credit markets, but it's certainly a, a reasonable level. And the reason they have that debt is about... Seven or eight years ago, they bought uh, Goodman Fielder. Um, you may remember Goodman Fielder in Australia, the um, the food products company. It had a it was a, it was a, it's a fairly tough business anyway, very competitive, and they bought the company with partner Wilmar and paid I think it was one point three or one point four billion dollars for it back then and borrowed money to do that. And that was an absolutely disastrous acquisition. And they ended up selling their stake. At a 50% loss, they put in about 600 million US and they sold it back to their partner at 300 million US. And that has really scarred the company. I mean, that really, that, that loss, that mistake has really made them a lot more gun shy about doing more acquisitions. And since then, they focused much more on, as I say, like just, just paying out the cash and um, not doing anything stupid. So what I like about it is when you look at conglomerates, they do tend to go through these cycles of capital allocation of when things are going well, they're more aggressive and they expand and then eventually they make, they go too far and then, then they have to go through a period of, of um, sort of more disciplined spending. And for a company like First Pacific, it's, a, it's at the bottom of that stage. So they're just in this still sort of quite cautious phase, which means I think it's always possible that they do go and buy something else. But I think generally companies, when they've had that experience, they tend to be much more cautious about their next acquisition. And the, and the final point is the underlying businesses are very good quality and they're not particularly cyclical. It's not like you've got lots of you know very poor quality businesses that don't produce any cash. These businesses are all very cash generative, um, you know, got very strong market positions and not particularly cyclical. So you're really geared into the good part of, you know, I should say most of their business, even though it's a Hong Kong company, almost all their businesses in Indonesia and the Philippines. And so you're, you're geared into this growing middle class and the demographic story that we want, um, but you're getting into that at a, 
at a distressed price. We've had an expert on the show before who loves investing in these companies that are like family run and owned and have been for a while. And I think you mentioned at the top there, it's, it's, I couldn't quite catch it. The Salims, yeah. Yeah, yeah Salims. How, how does that, or does that factor into your investment thesis at all? And like, do you think about like the succession and how that plays out over the next sort of 20, 30 years? Yeah, I think you're right. I think when you invest in emerging markets, you need to be, or you develop a lot of tools for investing in family-owned companies and also companies with state involvement in them. It's just the nature of emerging markets is you're always going to have that issue. And family-owned companies have, I, I don't look at them as being better or worse than in inverted commas, professionally run companies, uh, they have some things they do better and some things they do worse. And there's a huge variation and you really need to dig into what's driving the company and how they're set up and what problems they like to get into and why. So the good thing about family owned companies is generally they're run with a very long time horizon. The person that runs it is, is giving it to their children. And so they're not thinking, how do I run this company to maximize my bonus for the next year? They're thinking, how do I run this company that make sure in a way that makes sure that my, my children and my grandchildren and their grandchildren will you know continue to own it. So that's the good thing. The bad thing is the governance is often much weaker because however many independent board members you have on, um, ultimately these family-owned companies, the decision is going to be made by one group of people. And it's very difficult to put in place effective mechanisms that stop that happening. You can, and you can make it more difficult for them to do things. But realistically, they're often going to make decisions where on a pure financial basis, maybe it doesn't stack up as well because they haven't had that rigorous discipline of having to produce a you know, full DCF valuation on this and argue against their cost of capital, whether they should do it. Um, so there's maybe some lack of discipline on investments. And so that's the trade-off of the, bet the things that are better about it and the things that are worse about it. And there's a whole spectrum of where companies are on this on that list. Fascinating company. Love that it's exposed to uh, both Indonesia and the Philippines. The two markets that you mentioned earlier were sort of in that fast-growing uh, emerging middle-class zone. Let's move to the second company. Uh, let's start at the top again. Uh, what is it? And um, I guess, yeah, what should we know about it? Well, this is a much newer company, which only listed uh, this year. Uh, and it's an uh, Indian real estate investment trust called Nexus Select, and it owns shopping malls in India. So you, it's like the Westfield or Center Group of, of India. And I suppose the appealing thing there is it's uh, currently it owns about 17 or 18 malls. There's only 100 grade A shopping malls in the whole of India. And so to put it in context, Shanghai has that many. I don't know how many Sydney has, but it's, um, you know, New York has about 100 grade A shopping malls. So it's a, it's a tiny market, and so you've got great organic growth potential. But what's even more interesting is that a lot of these shopping malls are owned by residential developers that just own one shopping mall, and so they're not, they don't know how to run malls. It's not really what they do. And so what these guys do is they're going and buying these assets, these other grade A malls from the, the owners, and then doing them up, running them properly. And obviously that allows a significant increase in rentals as well. So it's what's appealing is you've got this huge growth potential. Obviously, you know, 90% of the Indian market is still in, you know, outside the organized retail sector. You've got huge potential in, you know, uh, grade A shopping mall growth. And also these guys have got 
great potential within that, make good returns by buying these assets and effectively enhancing them. So it's got very low debt, um, 15% debt to assets, which would be you know, less than half the level of, a, of a, you know, the Australian equivalent. Um, it's got you know, the ability, I think, to grow dividends and cash flows by 10% a year for a very long period into the future. And then finally, it's backed by Blackstone, which, is, which gives you obviously confidence in the way that it's run. You would normally be perhaps somewhat worried about that because of the fee leakage, because Indian malls, Indian REITs are externally managed like Australian ones used to be until 10 or 15 years ago. The Westfield always used to have a, you know, a trust and a and Westfield court. But in India, the way that works is the fees are very low. So they're almost like internally managed from a, a fee perspective. The fees are only 1% of dividends. So if you're paying, if you're getting an 8% dividend yield, you're only paying eight basis points of fees. Um, to the manager. So it's a very, you know, which really just sort of covers costs. So it's not really much leakage out of there. So you've got a you know, good governance, good assets, good growth potential. It's a nice yield. As I say, it's yielding about 7%, 7.5%. And yeah, so I think that's a, is a really interesting company. Uh, and shopping malls definitely not a investment theme that uh, I would have thought a lot about. You know, in markets like Australia and, and the US, and I'm sure the UK, it feels like the the shopping mall is is slowly withering away on the uh, ever growing onslaught of online shopping. Like, what's the Indian consumers' shopping habit like? Uh, are malls becoming more and more a part of their lives? I was going to say, sorry, just to jump in there, Tom, that when I, so when I was there in 2011, no, 2010, 10, 2010, yeah. so 13 years ago or something, it was the thing. Going you to go the to the mall. Yeah. It was the thing to do. Like this, And this was in a small country town, uh, quotations of 2 million people. And it was the thing to do. You'd go to the mall, movies, game shops, air conditioning. Like it was, it was the thing. So I don't know if that still exists, but I, it was... A new experience for me, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. What's interesting, in a way, it is the same things driving people to the malls as it would be anywhere. And even in Australia and the UK, even though it's been challenging over the last five years, the amount of spending in malls is obviously still significant, and they still have significant footfall, and they're very, you know, important parts of um, uh, the sort of consumer landscape. You know, they they are losing share to online, but they're still, you know, it. it I probably wouldn't agree to say that they're dead as a concept. They're just changing. And But I'd say what's interesting in India is in some regards, some areas of India are even more affected by online. So grocery shopping, if you look at the stats of grocery shopping, it's far higher. The amount of grocery shopping that takes place online in India is far higher than it would be in the US, UK, or Australia. And so for their supermarkets, they've had to sort of, let's say, scale down the amount of space they give to supermarkets because that is somewhere that is being significantly affected by online retail. But I think what's good about shopping malls in emerging markets is even though they're a fixed structure, by, I mean, obviously you can extend them, but you know, they are a fixed structure. So you can't grow volumes to some, you know, in some ways you can't grow volumes, but as people get wealthier, you're obviously changing the mix of what your, what your, who your tenants are. So you can take out some tenants that are aimed at lower income consumers and put in uh, tenants that are selling more hiring goods. And that means that you can grow with consumer spending, even though you've got this sort of fixed amount of sales you can do in a sort of physical sense. You can actually readjust your mix so that you're actually benefiting from, you know, the overall growth. 
but I think it's the same. I mean, when you look at what drives it, you know, um, you know, restaurants, um, cinemas, you know, a lot of uh, uh, clothes, you know, fashion is, is something that drives sales there. It's it's very it's going to be pretty you know pretty similar by and large to what you see in in, in other malls. But what's great is there. I could imagine in ten years' time the, the tenants may look completely different depending on how much income has grown. You may see a very different tenant mix as opposed to Australia or the UK, where broadly speaking you're going to see pretty much the same people in most malls. Yeah. Now, Tom, I should be clear. I was being a little bit hyperbolic when I was saying that malls were dying. If <laughs> uh, if anyone in Sydney has tried to find a park on a Saturday at Bondi Junction, Westfield, <laughs> they would certainly know that uh, that malls aren't dying. Um, so I guess, you know, if we talk about the, the long-term investment thesis here, it, it seems like we've covered a lot of it. It's There's only 100 grade A malls in a country of 1.4 billion people. So there's capacity to, you know, grow the number of malls. And then you mentioned there the, I guess, the mix of shops in the mall as as cities develop and as people get wealthier in India, there, there can be more upmarket shops and you can charge them more. Uh, is that really the, the core of the thesis? Is there anything else that um, that we haven't covered off yet? Yeah, no, it's, 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 very, it's very simple. I mean, there's certain uh, tax advantages that REITs in India have, which means it's very attractive for people to sell their malls into a REIT because they, if you take units, you don't pay, you defer your capital gains tax. So that makes it quite efficient for companies like Nexus, which is the only listed shopping mall REIT that they have an advantage when it comes to dealing with these sellers because of this, this sort of tax treatment. But I think it's one of those stocks where REITs in India are a funny creature because they're, they, you know, they're a separate class of stock. They're not thought of as in the same way as stocks. So a lot of people that run mutual funds in India would not be able to own these, um, you know, the, these REITs, which are normally marketed to sort of fixed income investors. So they are these almost like orphan stocks, REITs in India, because they're still a very small asset class. I mean, this is only, um, you know, it's a couple of billion US dollar market cap. It doesn't really get much attention from the market, much attention from either local or or um, um, foreign investors, because it comes back to that point that if you had something like this in Australia, if you have a lot of type of pension fund investors, people who are looking for good yield and good growth, this is very appealing. But in India, because people are looking for sort of hyper growth and, um, you know, they're looking for stocks that are, you know, they're not looking at REITs because they're perceived to be, you know, yield vehicles, then it just doesn't get much attention. So, you know, I think it's a great story and one that hopefully we'll own for, you know, 10 years plus because the, you know, the management, the debt level, the industry, the, the, the you know, the way it's run, the management team are fantastic. So, yeah, that, that I, I think it, it is a simple and a straightforward story, but, I think is one where it's, it's just a very nice combination of, of, of yield and growth. Love it. Love it. it I'm, I'm getting the sense that uh, your investment philosophy uh, is sort of boring stocks, exciting markets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't need to be the flashy or sexy name, you know, Noodles. The, you know the new, like the Sea the Limited or GoTo in Indonesia, let the growth investors <laughs> yeah. have them. You'll find the, the steady compounders in, in growing markets. Yeah, absolutely. I always used to say, I always say to investors, if you can think of anything exciting in Asia, chances are we don't own that. <laughs> because, um, we're always, but then the thing, the other thing, just as maybe sort of final thoughts on that is, in Asia, almost everything has been thought of as exciting and, and not exciting. So 
Indonesia and, you know, 10 years ago, these were the flavor of the month. They traded on huge valuations and now they're very unpopular. China, you know, obviously as recently as 2021 was trading on, you know, these companies are trading on massive multiples and now you can't give them away. So the thing about Asia is things are always going in and out of fashion. And I think you always need to be, in my view, careful about buying things that are in fashion and very popular because lots of things can go wrong in Asia. It's this off-piece skiing analogy. And you always need to be, I think, sort of careful um, because it's possible that the things we own, although they're perceived as being boring, they're, they're not, you know, they're companies, as you can see, are growing and are very interesting. And maybe in five years' time, they are the popular stocks. And we probably won't own them by then. But it's it's these things in Asia, stocks go in and out of fashion uh, very quickly. Well, some great advice to finish on there, Tom. Thank you so much. That does bring us to the end of our uh, interview today, but it's not the end of uh, listening to some of your fascinating stocks. You will be at the Sown Hearts and Minds conference pitching your stock for the next 12 months. We are looking forward to uh, to seeing you there, but for the Equity Mates community who, uh, who can't get tickets to the in-person event, we do have a discount code available if you would like to see it online and tune in online. So there'll be a link in the show notes to, uh, to buy the tickets. The code is EquityMates2023, all one word. Uh, and the ticket prices are $400 for the Equity Mates community with all the proceeds going towards medical research. It's a great cause and you will see some of the world's best investors pitch their high conviction stock for the year of 2024. So we cannot wait. And if uh, it's anything to go by the two stocks that were spoken about today, we cannot wait to hear what you bring to the table, Tom. So thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on the 17th of November. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have physicians in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.